Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors for the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to this podcast in the series that we're doing, Shaking the Global Order, American Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. And we are very pleased today to be joined by Tom Wright. Tom is a fellow and director of the Project on International Order and Strategy, as well as a fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe, both of them at the Brookings Institution. Let's bring in Tom and we can discuss all the issues related to American foreign policy in the age of Trump. Welcome, Tom, to another uh, podcast in the Global Summitry series. Thank you, Alan. It's a great pleasure to be here. All righty. So, Tom, uh, you were one of the first to really look at uh, Trump's early foreign policy views. You did a piece in Politico in January 2016, and in that piece you argued uh, that Trump had a remarkably coherent worldview. So maybe you can just sketch out what you saw as Trump's early views and his worldview in general. Yeah, I, you know, I think over the last few weeks in particular, we've seen uh, Trump sort of bounce around on different issues. I, I think that's a separate thing. We can come yeah. to that, I'm sure. But what I was writing about really a, over, just over a year ago, I guess, um, was that if you look over sort of the last 30 years, so from the mid-1980s until the election of 2016, you see that Trump has actually spoken about foreign policy a lot. Like, usually he would speak about it in interviews, he would bring it up, he would sort of begin to mouth off in his view of the way things should be. And with all of those statements over those three decades, um, they're actually remarkably consistent. He says the same things over and over again. He raises the same issues. He is the same general outlook. The language is often very similar. And I argue that there were three things really that he 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 was fairly consistent on, and one um, uh, and one role that he sort of saw for himself. The the three um, things he was consistent on was firstly he was always very skeptical of alliances. He was always very worried that allies were ripping America off, that America was defending other countries for free. He famously paid a hundred thousand dollars to publish a full page ad in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Boston Globe. In 1987, when he was 41 years old, um, which act, uh, in which he published an open letter about his views on alliances and why they were a bad idea for America. And a lot of the language used in that was very similar to the language in the 2016 campaign. So that's sort of the first thing, I think, that he was fairly consistent on. The second is he's always been a skeptic of trade. He's always been really opposed to free trade. I mean, he's opposed every free trade deal the U.S. has signed since World War II. Um, he said that he disagreed with every president after World War II on trade, that you'd need to go back to the 19th century really to find somebody he liked. And he's recently praised Lincoln as a protectionist. So the second thing is he's more of a mercantilist. He's sort of a skeptic of the post-war international economic order. And then the final thing is he, you know, he's never really had any time for democracy, human rights. He's always praised authoritarian leaders. 
And he's always been pretty fond of Russia. Like, he's always um, had a close relationship or certainly said positive things about Russian authoritarians as far back as 1990 when he condemned Gorbachev for not cracking down on protests in, in the Soviet Union. So those three things I think he's been fairly consistent on. Um, and then the role he sees for himself, he's always seen himself as the ultimate negotiator, a dealmaker. Um, in a profile in the Washington Post in 1984, when he was only 38, um, the profile was largely was meant to be about New York and, and the buildings he was building. But he said he his dream job was to be a nuclear arms negotiator, negotiating with the Soviet Union, and that he could do this and nobody else could because he was born with deal-making ability <laughs> that America's leaders did not have. And uh, the interviewer said, well, what would you do? You know, what would you know? And he said, oh, I know everything there is to know about nuclear weapons. Anything I don't know, I could learn in half an hour. Um, but he said, I have a plan. I know exactly what I would ask them for, but I can't tell you. It has to be secret in case uh, in case they find out. So that was in 1984. So, you know, there are um, a lot of the sort of crazy things we see with him in terms of things he would say about, you know, the, the Middle East peace or big deals here, there, or wherever. Um, that has very deep roots with him. And so these aren't, all of these views aren't views that are particularly well developed and they're not ready to be converted into policy. Um, you know, he hasn't uh, dug extremely deep on them in terms of, you know, teasing all the elements out. Um, but they are sort of visceral beliefs, I think. And, and that's what he comes into the presidency with in January of 2017. Uh, now, I noticed that you did a more recent piece, and this was for uh, the Lowy Institute in Australia, and you called the piece, Trump Takes Allies Back to the 19th Century Global Order. And indeed, you identify those three elements, the skepticism with respect to alliances, free trade, opposition, admiration for authoritarian strongmen. And you then suggest in the piece that that, you know, that kind of uh, complexion of foreign policy might add up to a push by Trump for a uh, multipolar order in what was described in the big uh, kind of setting as the America first policy. In fact, not only did you suggest it would be multipolar, but that, in fact, the major powers might possess distinct spheres of interest in the global order. So I guess the, the immediate question becomes, you know, given these policy initiatives by Trump in the last almost 100 days, do they conform at all to this notion of a multipolar order? And how does it line up with this America first approach? Yeah, uh, well, you know, the, I guess the first point I'd make is what I was really trying to get at, I guess, in that in that piece was that, um, you know, foreign policy is about individual decisions, but it's also about in the aggregate where you're trying to get to. Right. And I, I think that today, you know, there are really two different worlds on offer. Like any president really has to ask themselves what their objective is, and there are two different ways one could go. The first is that one could say, you know, I sort of like the liberal international order that's existed since the Cold War or maybe since World War II, and that we should continue some version of that, and maybe that needs to be amended. Maybe we need to bring in the BRICS, or maybe we need to reform the UN or the G20 or, you know, figure it out around the margins. But essentially, the core of that would remain the organizing principle of modern moral politics, right, that you have alliances and an open global economy and, you know, an imperfect push 
but persistent push for, you know, liberal values and, you know, democracy, human rights and other things. So that's the first model. That's essentially what we're all pretty familiar with. Um, and the second alternative to that is a world that's, uh, you know, organized really around spheres of influence, that it's more closed off, that China's a much bigger role in East Asia, the U.S. sort of pulls back, that Russia has a bigger role in Eastern Europe, the EU is weaker, NATO is weaker, the U.S. has sort of pulled back a bit, um, you know, the, the the Middle East is, is sort of carved out between Sunni and Shia. The global economy has sort of closed off a little bit more than it is, a lot more than it is now, and it's more um, mercantilist with different blocks. And I think that isn't a totally far-fetched, you know, prospect. I mean, it's not one in which the world has fallen apart, um, but it is, I think, very, very different than what we have today. And arguably, if there was a second financial crisis or something, that may be a lot closer. So I think that I, th I think that ultimately Trump's sort of vision, more 19th century vision of the world, leads us to that spheres of influence model. Like he's not really that supportive of upholding a liberal international order or spending political capital on it. Mm -hmm. But that gets to the big question, I guess, which is, you know, has he completely reversed himself? And is it, you know, is he doing things quite differently than what he sort of said before he came in? And there I've argued that I think the story of the first 100 days really is the you know fight between the different factions within the Trump administration, because his view is really a minority view. Very few people held it. Very few people agreed with him. And he turned to generals who turned out to be much more mainstream than he is. Mm -hmm. And um, the, I think there's a struggle between the mainstream elements with Mattis and and, uh, and Kelly and McMaster and others, and then uh, the America Firsters, um, led by Trump, but also Bannon, you know, and others. And that, that um, and that the, you know, on occasion, one faction is one, on occasion, another faction is one. Trump being completely unprepared for the presidency has also meant that he's not been really able to implement his America First position. So I think there has been some moderation, not as quite as much as some people are saying, maybe, um, but some moderation. And um, I think that my bottom line, I guess, is that the administration is trending toward a more normal foreign policy most of the time. But I worry in particular about crisis points or major challenges in which he has to really spend political capital to uphold traditional U.S. foreign policy. And I worry that in those cases, he will not, and the old America first impulses will come out. Mm -hmm. I will see a very dramatic shift. Well, I mean, that's very interesting. And let's go, you know, obviously to the most kind of substantive element of policymaking, foreign policymaking that this administration has had. And uh, I looked, you know, there are lots of writing. This reflects on the issue of uh, Syria and his actions there. And I noted uh, Peter uh, Baker in the New York Times just a few days ago, um, you know, trying, as did others, trying to describe the outline of what they saw as a Trump doctrine. And Peter said that the doctrine was don't get roped into a doctrine. And he demonstrated, as you had mentioned just a bit ago, a highly improvisational, situational approach 
that could inject a risky and unpredictable element into relations with potential antagonists. And obviously the most evident feature at the moment, although we've got some competitors, but the evident one is with Syria and his decision to have a missile strike against uh, Syria and particularly the military base where apparently the uh, planes flew that gassed uh, the Syrian village. So, I mean, what does what is there a doctrine there? Is what does the um, effort with Syria and the chemical weapons suggest? I mean, and how does it line up with maybe his inclinations for an America first strategy? Yeah. So, you know, I think the doctrine frame is almost always pretty unhelpful, mm-hmm. actually. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's usually unrealistic because all presidents, I think, um, contradict uh, what they may believe on occasion because policy is complicated. And really, the question is, where is the general direction headed? Right. You know, and that and that takes a while. I mean, Obama, I think by the end, the doctrine was fairly clear in terms of wanting to avoid uh, getting engaged in new wars in the Middle East. But. Um, you know, if you looked at it in 2009 with the mini surge in Afghanistan, that would seem to contradict that pretty heavily. So I think, you know, there's always different, there's variation, but mm-hmm. it's important to sort of try to look to see what the, over, what the overall inclination is. So that aside, I think what happened in Syria is this. Um, he, the, the question I think we have to start with is why did Assad launch the chemical weapons attack? Like, why did that happen? And I think the most obvious explanation for that, um, which I think is correct, is that he thought he could get away with it, right? He thought that <laughs> Trump didn't care. Trump had repeatedly said he didn't care. He repeatedly said human rights weren't a concern, yeah. that Assad could stay, that ISIS is the priority. So Assad said, you know, uses chemical weapons because he sees it to his, you know, temporary military advantage in Syria, maybe a shock and awe thing to, you know, to demonstrate that the the end is near and, you know, that he's uh, has a winning hand. And then President Trump is faced with this dawning realization that if he pursues a pure America first position, he will be looking at repeated at chemical weapons attacks on civilians for weeks, if not months. Mm-hmm. And that when you say there are no limits, everyone can do what they want, that that can lead to a pretty bad place, right? And he's, I think, genuinely repulsed by what he sees on the TV images. Um, maybe his daughter played a role in that as well. Uh, she was obviously upset at it, um, according to media reports, and made the case to him. And then he's offered this solution, which is, you know, you can launch uh, 59 tom- or 60, 59 Tomahawk missiles, take out the um, the air base. Um, it was very proportionate. It's basically the pinprick action that Obama rejected in 2013. Um, and... And that that could deter Assad from further use of chemical weapons. Mm-hmm. Very low risk, um, you know, very contained. And I think like most presidents, he took that. And I think it was effective because I think Assad really values Trump's neutrality or quasi-support on Syria too much and will not escalate. So I, I thought that it would, you know, it would achieve its purpose in that narrow sense. And I think that's what happened. And the media reaction and the Trump administration's reaction was a fundamental shift. You know, it really wasn't like he was he was pretty clear afterwards that he wasn't going to put military force on Assad, 
they said that ultimately Assad had to go, but only in the context of where ISIS was already defeated and there was international negotiation, including the Russians, to think about an alternative. So I felt that the degree of the shift was hugely exaggerated. And then the Russian reaction, I thought, was very muted. Um, they were very vocal uh, rhetorically, but they didn't actually escalate on the ground, which is really the true measure of how worried or opposed they would be, you know, and even on the rhetoric front, they sent out Medvedev, not Putin. You know, they usually send out Putin when they're really upset. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, so I thought that all of that was sort of blown out of proportion. And then when we saw the meeting with the Russians, with Tillerson, I thought that meeting was basically a lot more cooperative than was sort of made out. So, uh, you know, I think it is a it is a modest shift. I don't think it's a 180 degree shift. I think it's fairly sort of understandable um, in terms of, I think, you know, he was right to deter the use of chemical weapons. Um, but I think we should avoid jumping to conclusions that he has, like, completely, utterly changed his mind on this. You know, I think there was a correction. Okay. Uh, because he realized that, you know, to give a carte blanche to someone like Assad is insane. That's that's fair point. Okay, so from your perspective, there's no doctor in there. That that's not where we're at. And he he shifted, but not shifted dramatically. Well, if that's the case vis-a-vis -vis Russia, then how do we interpret? Uh, and again, it's early days, but how do we interpret his policy with China, and in particular his preliminary meeting with uh, Xi Jinping? Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, China had been the target, really, along with Mexico, I suppose, with respect to trade. And uh, Trump makes it clear that, one, he's not going to identify, at least for now, China as a currency manipulator. They set up a kind of joint task force to deal with changes to the relationship in terms of trade, giving it a 100-day purview, but unclear just how deeply they're going to go into trade policy. Uh, and so here we are with, you know, kind of the key irritant, in as he saw it, in terms of trade and America's decline. So what do we make of that policy uh, initiative? I think there has been a bit more of a shift, actually, on China, um, but it's, it's still very unclear, obviously. But I think you're right. I mean, they came in really wanting to wage an economic war against China. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it would have been grossly irresponsible. Um, I think two things have happened. I'm still trying to figure it out, but two things have happened. One is Gary Cohn, the former head of Goldman, has been growing an influence in the White House and has the respect of Trump and has been pushing him in a bit of a more moderate direction on the economic front, really educating them, I think, on what China could do in response. <laughs> you know, because originally they thought that China couldn't really do very much at all. And I think that, you know, that they thought that the U.S. could fight and win an economic war. And um, I think they now understand that that's probably not possible. Desirable. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is the North Korea threat. You know, Trump is sort of decided that the economics should take a back seat to the geopolitics. Mm -hmm. um, a little surprising, but I think it's because he perceives a direct threat from North Korea that he wants China on board. So the, the position there, I think, has moderated um, a little bit. And then I think China's moving, too, to try to appease him a little bit on the economic front, um, you know, just to sort of, you know, reduce the, the antagonism. 
Um, so, you know, this still has many, you know, we're only barely through the first act, I think, of U.S.-China relations, um, or not even through the first act at the beginning of it. So as many, as a long, long way to go. And I do think it will be fairly uh, fraught. But I think actually this year, 2017, may be a year of relative stability, because I think the Xi Jinping doesn't want serious disruption with the, the major party Congress later this year. And so I think that, the, you know, 2018 may be more risky year in U.S.-China relations. Okay. Uh, fair enough. But, I mean, you know, looking at the real away from trade and more at the security dimension, where is Trump policy going then with respect to North Korea uh, and its uh, nuclear policy? I mean, how does that line up with the America first kind of framing, if at all? Well, I think it's it's certainly consistent with it because um, you know it's a direct threat to the United States, or, or the, the the risk is that there would be a direct threat to the United States if they develop an ICBM, and so it's capable of hitting the United States. So that was, I guess, the intelligence that was briefed to him pretty early on. That's what sort of caught his attention. I think he sees it not as a foreign obligation; he sees it as a as a direct threat or direct problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the analytical distinction. Like, it's not that he's super worried about North Korea's threat to South Korea. He's worried really about what North Korea may do to the U.S. So I think that explains why he's taken by it to the degree that he is. I think then you get into the question of, well, what can one do? And he um, had a certain, he seems to have certain beliefs that are not quite right. Like, he believed that China could do whatever, you know, could absolutely solve this problem in a heartbeat. Um, and then the other day, he basically said that he now understands that that's not the case because Xi Jinping explained North Korean Chinese history to him in 10 minutes. <laughs> um, so that was a direct quote. So um, so that's... Um, so, the, so he sort of, you know, realized, I think, that it's more complicated, but he is trying to ratchet up the pressure. Now, the problem is that you know, there are, as you know, there are no really good options in North Korea, right? right? And, and so he, what the U.S. has done with redeploying the carrier group and, and all of that is very normal. I think it's it's really about signaling reassurance and robustness and that there's not going to be any weakness on the American side in terms of support for allies. I think it's all positive. It's not um, new. Um, the only person who's claiming that it is new is really Trump, right? So he's saying... Actually, we're sending very powerful weapons and a very powerful armada to Korea, and their days are numbered. But I think it's, it, it doesn't really make any sense. You know, it's not—there are no—outside of military action to prevent an ICBM test from succeeding or from ICBMs being launched, really, I don't think people seriously consider military contingencies on the Korean peninsula. Mm-hmm. So— um, for the very good reason that, you know, the response would be devastating for Seoul and for, you know, potentially for Japan and that it would cause enormous loss of life. And so I think it's, it's um, the, the rhetoric is a little worrying because it, it seems out of kilter with actually what's being done. Right. They're deliberately sort of exaggerating it for whatever reason. Then there are these media reports that the U.S. is preparing preemptive strikes or assassination attempts and I mean, all of that is um, 
almost certainly absolutely not true, but it begs the question, why is anybody saying that to the press? I mean, presumably they're not completely making it up, you know, so maybe someone's trying to pretend that they're, they are thinking of it, but they are, but they are I, almost certainly sure that they are not. I mean, because it doesn't add up as a, as a viable option, you know, and also I think we got to remember that the Secretary of Defense is, you know, a fairly responsible guy who's not going to sign off on some cockamamie scheme, you know, if he thinks it's it's foolish. So um, I, I think it's there's less change there than meets the eye on Korea. I think any administration, a third-term Obama, a Clinton administration, would have had to focus more on it. So I don't think it's unusual that he's focused on it. Okay. Well, if then, at least at the heart of that policy, there is still America first, that is, he recognizes it or the people around him recognize it as a national security threat to the United States. But how do you then line up his meeting uh, with Stoltenberg, as Secretary General of NATO, and he comes away saying, notwithstanding, you know, great headlines early when he said, well, NATO is obsolete. Now he has this meeting with him and he says, oh, great meeting. Uh, NATO is not obsolete. So, you know, how does that line up with his America first uh, yeah, strategy? Yeah, like this, this particular incident really frustrated me because I thought it was completely misreported. Um, okay. okay. So he, he originally said that NATO's original mission of defending Europe from Russia was obsolete. Right. And that NATO was obsolete because it didn't focus on terrorism, Right. Yep. There were two parts of that. One was it didn't focus on terrorism, so it's obsolete. And the second was we shouldn't really care about the core mission in NATO. What he said with Stoltenberg was NATO is now focused on terrorism, so it's not obsolete. But he didn't say the original mission is not obsolete. It's actually really important. And he has still not said that Article 5 is sacrosanct and he'll defend it. Yeah. Right. Secretary of Defense has said that, his vice president has said it, but he has not. And so the worry with him and NATO is not that he won't show up to a meeting. The worry with him and NATO is that he may not be fully committed to Article 5, right? That's always been the concern. And while there's been a little bit of movement on it, that is still a concern. Mm-hmm. And so the the media, I think, took the not obsolete as saying complete reversal. But I, I think really... You know, as analysts, we need to sort of examine it more closely. And the conclusion is that there's still ambiguity, to put it mildly, about his commitment to the security of Eastern and Northern Europe. And that's um, that has not changed. Well, OK. Stoltenberg, his incentives are to take the win and say, yes, he's on board. Right. His incentive is not to explore the shortcomings in Trump's position. Right. Because they're trying to turn this into a self-fulfilling thing where basically, you know, he is actually fully supportive. But if you read the language carefully, I think there's more continuity there and there's there's more ambiguity on the core mission issue. Does that make sense? I, I, yeah, I can see the two-parter and, uh, and that makes sense to me. Uh, but I guess then the question, kind of the wrap-up question here is, All right. You believe that there is still an element of the America first, at least with respect to him, maybe muted with respect to advisors around him, um, Cohen and uh, Tillerson, et cetera. 
But the you know the kind of the big question is okay. So what's the consequence for the contemporary liberal order, given that Trump remains seemingly somewhat ambiguous about it? Where where are we moving with it? Um, yeah, I think that you know I the way I would describe it is that we we have serious systemic risk resulting from the Trump presidency, right? That. I don't worry as much about proactive attempts to dismantle the liberal order, because I think that, that while there's an element of that, a lot of the key cabinet people are relatively solid, and um, there's enough resistance inside the administration to actually tearing things apart. Maybe there's a little bit more risk on the economic side than on the security side, but they're not going to proactively pull out of NATO, right? right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But there is a systemic risk that when things happen, they may respond in such a way that, you know, that doesn't uphold certain commitments or certain things, you know. And so I don't think the risk has gone away at all. I think it's, it, it's, um, but it, it's, it's a slightly different risk than it was. Okay. Um, so it's been evolving, um, but it's not, it's less to do with, you know, a coherent America first team that totally changes everything. And it's more to do with, um, you know, the, the risk that comes from having somebody like Donald Trump as president of the United States. I see. So so just to, to, to refine that a bit, I take it you see the risk in this administration potentially at some point in the crisis being unwilling, to, for instance, on the European side, NATO, to sustain the Article 5, which is the collective security provision, or if things heat up more dramatically in East Asia, an unwillingness to take account uh, potentially of South Korea's interest as they try and shape policy towards North Korea in China. I mean, is that kind of where your concerns at the moment lie? Yeah, I think uh, multiple fronts. So I'll give you a totally different non-security one. Say there's another financial crisis. Okay. Like what? And I know you've done amazing work in the G20 and everything. What what guarantee do we have that he will act responsibly in a financial crisis? Mm-hmm. You know, that he will cooperate and undertake the political risks at home to keep the international system afloat. Mm-hmm. Say the crisis occurs somewhere else, you know, and the Fed is required to do swaps and other, you know, the, the Treasury is required to be really cooperative and right. bail and, out people. So, yeah. I mean, will he do that or will he say, actually, if China falls apart, that's good for the United States? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what he'll do. Mm-hmm. And if Congress is or if pu- the public is like, well, you know, the public reaction on financial crisis is always difficult because it's always very moralistic and it's not necessarily designed to actually stop the systemic risk. You know, Bush overcame that, Obama overcame that, but would he? So that's, you know, that's one example, um, you know, of something that could occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the two you mentioned, I think, are very are, are also ones. Um, and then there were just things that happened like, you know, Iraq in 1990 invading Kuwait, you know, um, it would have been quite conceivable that H.W. Bush would not have responded to that, but he did. And, and you know, would Trump, um, you know, again, I don't think Syria is a great analogy on all of this because it was a very limited operation with very little risk. Right. You know, so the question is, would he actually put his presidency at risk for some of this stuff? And so that's um, so I guess the, those are the those are the worries I have. And then just there's the smaller things about 
just the decisions they have to make, you know, over time. I mean, there's still no idea what their policy toward Iran actually is, but that will be forced on them, if not by a crisis, just by the daily drumbeat of events, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I take it, from your perspective, kind of U.S. global leadership under a Trump administration remains at risk. You're still not clear what the consequences uh, to it might be from events and from policy. Yeah, of course. They're definitely definitely still at risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but not but not um but I think it's a it's more of a systemic risk than an immediate um you know, I think that the 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 mainstream faction have had tremendous success in the first hundred days and have done amazing work in sort of in shaping Trump and, and and gaining control of the interagency process, and I think that wasn't inevitable. That happened because they tried very hard and they succeeded. Um, and you know, those of us who favor that position should be grateful for that. But the, it hasn't. It's made things better, but it hasn't. It hasn't um, removed all risk at all. And I don't think they would think that it has either. Okay, that's fair. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, a very interesting uh, examination. And uh, do keep well, and we'll be speaking to you soon. Great. Thank you, Alan. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z. Music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.